The passage today comes from John 12, uh, that's 36b through 43. It says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he, they had, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the ability to come together today and to worship you and to praise you and to learn more about you. Pray that you would just open our eyes and show yourself to us. Pray that you'd be with uh, Stacy in his preaching and just um, just speak through him today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You see the question. It's the title, but it's also uh, the issue. Two things to start. Two things that will help us. So, a good reminder to do this probably every morning, but I'm going to do it this morning. This is God's Word. Uh, so we want to treat it as such, right? That's what we do. We open God's Word. We share it together. We recognize that it's God in His authority and His wisdom, His perfection, who's making Himself known to us. And so we want to treat God's Word as such. Other thing, second thing, I'm more concerned this morning with the big idea uh, and how John lays it out than I am with the little nuances. There are little nuances in this passage, as a matter of fact, you know, you can look at it, you can see John uses Isaiah's name three times. He's, it's a big source for him. There's a big background there. I'm going to do a little bit there, but I'm not going to do a ton. My main concern is what is it that John is primarily driving at as he uses Isaiah as his source. But since we know that it's God's word, we know it's perfectly wise. Uh, we know that God is revealing Himself to us through His Word. We know that He's doing it for our good. So when God puts something in His Word, He's not doing that because He doesn't know. He knows, right? He's doing that for us uh, to know. So we should receive it and trust it and draw near to Him through it. Uh, so, another little aside and then we'll jump in to the text itself. What is it that I do? Every once in a while on a Sunday morning, I think it's a good idea to sort of explain my job description, okay? And so uh, I'm, a, I'm a man of opinions. That is not my job this morning. Um, I have lots of thoughts. That's not my job this morning. What is it that a preacher does? What is, he, what is it that he is called to do when he stands up on a Sunday morning, Lord's Day, with God's people, opens God's Word to share it with them? Now, if you've been around for a while, you've heard me say this. It's really pretty simple. My job is to explain and exhort. We're, we're sharing God's Word together, so it's really important that we understand what it means and that we apply it. Understand, what is it that God is saying? How, how do we understand this? Uh, you know, what's He driving at so that we're clear about what's in the Word? And then the second part is applying it. 
Since it's God's Word and it comes with all the authority and wisdom uh, that comes from the person of God, how is it that we should receive it and submit ourselves to it, live it out? Okay? So I'm going to do those two things this morning. That's my aim. Understand and apply. Explain and, ex- and exhort. So first of all, let's understand the text together. Best way to start, look at verse 37 again with me. There's the issue. John is wrestling with a particular thing that comes up that you would go, well, why? And here it is. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's the issue. How can the unbelief of people be explained, in particular in their context, right? How is it that since Jesus had done all these signs, so many things, how is it that we should understand what's going on here? Uh, Why is it that they rejected him? It's vexing on the surface. It's not what you would expect. You would, in one sense, you would look at it and go, listen, the evidence is staggering. And so it's clear what the, what the deal is. They still don't believe. Jesus gives these clear and powerful signs that are displays of his credentials. How do you know that he's the Christ? How do you know that it's really Jesus who's the one sent from God? He puts it out through these credentials, these signs. Here they are. And yet, the majority of people reject him. How do you explain that? That's a big issue. Even today in evangelism, like uh, in certain groups, they'll look at the response of people in the context of the first century and they'll dismiss the claims of Christianity out of this. So just let's do a little survey of John, okay? And that way, just the gospel of John, what are the credentials that Jesus lays out so that we would know that he is the Christ? These powerful signs, and like I said, lots of them. He turns water into wine. Some of you, uh, not so inexplicably, that's your favorite miracle, right? Um, turns water into wine. He heals an official son remotely. He's from another town and does that. He heals a man by the pool who had been an invalid for 38 years, almost four decades. And uh, heals him, feeds the 5,000 plus, walks on water, heals a man born blind, and raises his friend from the dead. That's pretty good signs, right? I mean, that's a pretty good, that's just the gospel of John. So here it is, this compelling case for Jesus is met with unbelief. They don't accept him. And you might go, well, how is that even possible? I mean, wouldn't it, aren't people reasonable after all? Wouldn't they see all of this and go, well, yeah, obviously, I mean, Jesus is the way to go. He's, he's the one. Well, what follows is John's explanation of that. How is it that all these people reject Jesus when he's given these clear, powerful signs of who he is? And he gives us two perspectives on this. Now, you need to know that these two perspectives are not in the alternative. He's describing the same scenario. So they're not in the alternative. John doesn't go, all right, here's one perspective or here's the other perspective. It's not that. It's both and. He says, here's a perspective, and we're going to do it like this. Here's a perspective And here's a perspective on the same scenario. Why don't they believe this and this? What are those two perspectives? The first is the metaphysical perspective. I know uh, the word metaphysical, right? I could have put eternal or spiritual. Metaphysical just means beyond the physical, right? It's beyond our realm. It's beyond what you can appropriate with your senses, what you see, what's observable. You, do you realize that not everything that's out there is observable by human beings, okay? 
And so, what is beyond that? What, what is in the spiritual? What is in the eternal? And he gives us that perspective. And that perspective, you might go, is way up here. That's in God's sphere. That's the first perspective that he gives us. How, what is God's perspective? What was God doing on this? There are a few elements to point out as, the, as John lays out the argument. One is the context. You remember all the way back in, we've been talking about the triumphal entry and uh, the aftermath of that for a few weeks now. And as Jesus comes into the city uh, triumphantly and they hail him as king and then they turn around and reject him as king, you know, just in a few moments, uh, time it seems like, uh, there are, John observes, Greeks, Greeks present. There are Gentiles there. And they press in, uh, we want to see Jesus. A little bit after that, in verse 32, Jesus says, listen, when I am lifted up, when I die on the cross, I'm going to draw all people to myself. This, I'm going to accomplish salvation, and it's going to be not just restricted to a group, it's going to be for the whole world, whoever puts his or her trust in me. Right? And, and so that drawing, the, the Jewish rejection of Jesus is part of that. That's why you see that little piece of it here. Bigger part, in John's case, is his appeal to Isaiah. Right? Isaiah was a prophet whose ministry was over 700 years before Jesus came. And he, he did ministry like so many prophets. He did ministry in a tough time. Told the truth, people didn't believe it. Told the truth, people didn't believe it. But what he does is he uh, cites Isaiah twice here. You see it kind of... If, you, if your scripture works this way, you can see it sort of indented there in quotes, and he gives his source. In verse 38, he's, he's um, citing Isaiah 53.1, where Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what we heard from us, or, or what he heard from us, and to what has the arm of the... Oh, let me do that again, okay? Lord, you know, there are times that you've got to butcher it. You butcher it so badly, you just got to get another steer. So that's what I'm going to do, all right? <laughs> Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah reports the astonishment of the nation. So if you go back in Isaiah in the previous chapter, verse 14, they're sort of blown away that the, the king is coming, this suffering servant is coming, and is rejected by people and yet exalted by God a curious case why does it happen that way you know no one believed he goes on in the in verse 40 to cite isaiah 6 10 now isaiah 6 10 occurs in other places like mark 4 12 and in acts 28 it's probably connected to romans 11 and it says this he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and i would heal them god is speaking there and it was God acting. So why is, it, why is it that they reject him? How is they astonished that it worked this way? And what are we to make of it? And what he says is Isaiah saw this over 700 years before. God was acting. God did something to their eyes so that they couldn't see. God did something in their hearts so that they wouldn't believe. To the point that if you look at verse 39, they could not believe. Was he, did you notice at the very beginning of verse 38, he says, they didn't believe so that what Isaiah said would be fulfilled. That's his big point. 
Listen, Isaiah saw this in his ministry 700 years before, and this occurred so that what God had said before would be fulfilled. God had made his will and his known, uh, uh, made his will known, his plan known beforehand. What is the med- metaphysical perspective, that way up there? Well, it was the sovereign plan of God that there would be a rejection of Jesus to accomplish the rejection of the Christ, to accomplish salvation for the nations, to bring them in. So he says there's this, uh, it's a little bit enigmatic in verse 41. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What's he mean that he saw his glory? What was it that Isaiah was seeing all the way back then? He was seeing Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory in his death, uh, the rejection of him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He was seeing that. Jesus would be rejected. It had to happen so that the word of God would be fulfilled. This was the sovereign plan of God, and Isaiah saw it all those years ago, all those years before. Um, That's a little note here. Just, Just to follow it, he said, this is not a surprise. Isaiah prophesied about this, and the one he prophesied about was Jesus. All of this was seen, and it was part of God's great plan. Did you notice this interesting thing at the end of verse 36 where the passage for us this morning began? It says, when Jesus had said these things from the passage before, believe while you have the lights, what he was talking about before, he departed and hid himself from them. Why did he hide himself from them? He's acting out a parable, right? The the light would be removed from them. They couldn't see it was beyond them. The light was beyond them so that they couldn't see. And so they, they, they didn't believe because they couldn't really see him. He's acting that out. Now, it might be counterintuitive to you. We would think that it wouldn't work this way, but it does. Think about the Jesus coming, God's only son, and he's rejected. And instead of receiving him and exalting him, they kill him. It has to be a failure, right? No. Rejection and death is going to lead to salvation. It's not a failure. It's the plan. It's God's plan. So part of what John is saying here is no surprise. If the argument is, well, you can't believe in Jesus because, look, he did all these and the witnesses rejected him. So if they saw it firsthand and they rejected him, who would, you know, we'd be dumb to believe. Is no, no, no. All of this you could see 700 years ago in the ministry of Isaiah. Isaiah saw it. It was God's plan. So that's the first perspective. It's the way up there perspective. In the sphere of God perspective, God had a plan and he's working it out for the way that he would accomplish salvation. And he's working not just up there, but he's working in the minds and hearts of people. All right, what's the second perspective? How do you, how do you explain the rejection of, of Jesus? The second is the social psychological perspective. Done with big phrases, okay? The social psychological perspective. In other words, the social, you see the group forces, the cultural forces that, that uh, influence human behavior, and the psychological, the internal forces that influence human behavior. What's going on there? And in, in a nutshell, it's the contaminated judgment of people. All right, let's read 42 and 43 together again. And as we take those as a little unit, remember he's saying, look, here's the sovereign plan of God is part of the reason... It's one way that we explain this, and we're going to see something on the ground. If that's the way up there sphere, uh, the social uh, psychological 
perspective is right here in our midst. Look at what they do. He, he does a little case study. He says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So what John does is he cites, uh, gives us a case study. What is the, it's like Nancy Drew, right? What's the case? It's the case of many of the authorities. And how do they respond? It's really interesting here because it's really clear that they saw the truth, they knew it to be the truth, but they didn't follow it as the truth. Isn't that interesting? That somebody could see it, understand it, know it to be that, and yet not treat it as the truth. People do that? Well, all the time. People don't have the ability to do the emotional, ethical, spiritual uh, math with accuracy. It's, you know, you could call it uh, pollution, uh, viral, like there's a viral problem, if you just use an analogy, uh, dysfunction, the hard drive's messed up, whatever you want to call it. The Bible talks about sin and sin nature, uh, distorting our perception of what's real and what's good and what's true. Um, years ago, I'm not going to give the company, but I had a calculator. It looked like a calculator, had all the numbers and all that stuff. And you just punch it in, write the numbers, and normally it worked. Like you'd punch it in, and it would work, except sometimes it didn't. And, you know, a calculator's job, like, calculator doesn't have to do everything. It, it doesn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting. You don't buy a calculator to keep your living room clean, you know, you, right, to, to teach your dog obedience or anything like that. Calculator has one job, but you need it to reliably do that job. But anyway, this one, you would punch in the numbers normally right, but every once in a while, you punch in the numbers and it would be wrong. I remember one time, I was figuring out my mileage for the church. Church pays me mileage. And uh, I, I calculated in, you know, punched the numbers and spit back. I think the church owed me like $4.87 million. <laughs> so, I mean, in other words, it would compute. And, uh, but something in its programming contaminated its process, right? So, you, it would compute. It would spit out a number but the number wasn't always right. You can compute, and you can spit out a number, but your number isn't always right. right? Well, you might object. Well, I get it right a lot. Yeah, yeah, so did my calculator. Right? But you wouldn't want to count on it. Um, there's so often that you can evaluate something that you can have an opinion on it. You might be right, but there are times you're off. Something's contaminated your hard drive, especially on the biggest issue, the biggest issue of which is the truth about God. A lot of times people object about this. They'll, they'll push back and they'll say, this doesn't happen. And the point is, it happens all the time. This, like, like, here's the objection, if you want to state it. They, they'll say, listen, there's no way you see the obvious and reject it. People don't do that. It's like, what people do you know? You know, like, no way, if you see if it's obvious, you'll be all in. Okay, is it obvious to you, some of you, that you ought to eat less than you do? All right, I know, that's not nice, right? But to some of you go, yeah, I, that's been obvious to me for about, you know, like 47 years or whatever it is. And do you, just because it's obvious to you, do you follow through with that truth? 
No, you reject the truth. And you know it, right? You know what is true and what's good. And you're like, nah, tomorrow. Something like that. People reject the obvious. and Sometimes it's painful. They're going through grief and loss. And they go through all sorts of phases and stages as they wrestle that out where they're suppressing the truth in an attempt to try to deal with it. They'll do that with their enemies. They'll see the people they don't like and they'll, they'll put them like under a dehumanized category so that they can operate the way they want to. The history of Auschwitz, right? The POW camp, the concentration camp. Well, it was a concentration camp in World War II. People knew, and they acted like they didn't. It was heinous. It was obvious. And it was make-believe world where they lived. People say, like, listen, but we don't operate this way. I'll give you a case today. Just because it's kind of like this, uh, Jesus comes as the Christ, and the people reject him. And and you go, well, if it's obvious, uh, they would have surely received him. Let me ask you a question. We vote here. Uh, hopefully this isn't too controversial, but let's just say we had a person run for president of the United States. And it was, this person was the best person for the job. The best person for the job. Are you confident we would elect that person? See, their case, they understand these, many of the authorities who believed, they understand that Jesus is the one, but they allow something to get in the way. And here it's fear of man. So worried about the consequences. Like, hey, listen, I have this place in my life. And uh, if I do this, if I go out with with the truth, I'm going to lose my position. Right? They're they're afraid of being put out of the synagogue. It's the center of their social world. They love the glory that comes from people, it said. Two sides of the same coin. Um, Because they're nothing if the people in their world either reject them, cast them out, or if they don't approve of them and exalt them. I, I'll tell you what, I, listen, adults deal with this. Students sometimes think, young people sometimes think that whenever you become an adult, you outgrow all the things that hinder you. You know, I wouldn't have a job if that were the case, right? Uh, <laughs> you don't outgrow all of those things. Those are lingering sin issues. But students deal with this pressure all the time where they they. Their whole world centers on what do my classmates, what do other people in my world think about me? And they have a, a tremendous amount of fear of people in, the, you know, in their circle rejecting them. And they have this tremendous drive to be exalted by these people in their sphere. And they live, like, like I said, they live in constant fear and drive of that. If you're a student, you at least know to some level what that's like. They're just doing that and they're grown-ups. They didn't outgrow it. They worry so much about what the people in their sphere think that they don't even think about what God thinks. They don't have a concern over God's judgment, His view of what they do. Um, The desire for His well done, the desire for His blessing. That's to understand the text, okay? John raises this issue. It's an important issue even today. But it's it's a vexing issue. Jesus shows these powerful signs. It demonstrates His credentials, who He is, and yet people reject Him. How, how can you explain that? And what John says is, listen, there's a, uh, in the sphere of God explanation for this, and there's in the sphere of man, one little case study to explain this. Part of this is the plan of God. God is working out his plan for salvation. 
for everyone. But, but even here, you can look at the spiritual elites. They're in a position to know. They have all the evidence. They see it, but it's not strong enough. The truth is not strong enough because of who they are to convince them. That's the basic point of it. Now, how do we apply it? Well, let me give you something with the mind and something with the heart, okay? That's God's word. Let's start with the mind. I want you to put together two things. Put together the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people, of the person. And you put those together, okay? Let me say it again. Sovereignty of God and the responsibility of person, put them together. You might, in your handout, underline the word together. Put them together. Because what people often do on this issue is they make it an either-or issue, but it's actually a both-and issue, right? We see both in Scripture. Both are taught in Scripture. Um, The failure to do this inevitably will lead you to heresy. Strong word. It's a train wreck of the soul type stuff. If you exclude one for the other, uh, you'll make a mess of your theology. And part of it, God just lays it out there where, listen, He's sovereign, He's acting, He is absolutely going to accomplish His will, and the people really decide, and they do, and they're responsible for what they do. I'll give you a word that theologians sometimes use with this. It's called compatibilism. I only say that you don't necessarily need to remember the word in and of itself, but to think that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible with each other. They go together, okay? People object. They've done this over the years uh, in my ministry. I remember early on, uh, we were going through Scripture at one point, and something about the sovereignty of God came up. I don't remember who it was. And this, this person was well-meaning, but they basically said, hey, um, you know, kind of looked around like maybe there was a secret and I didn't know it, and said, hey, uh, I don't know that we should talk about this. I don't know that we should teach this. Kind of controversial. You might put people off. Uh, you know, God's sovereignty, at least when it comes to salvation and a person's capacity and wherewithal to decide things, like, let's not... T- Let's not chat about it. How do you answer that? Should I talk about that? Uh, The answer is actually easy. It's no trouble for me to do that. I've actually been called to uh, preach the word, right? To open God's word and share it. And so when it says something like, let me just point you to verse 39 again. Would you go there? Therefore, they could not believe. What do you do with that? Well, you, you believe it. You accept it. And if you don't understand everything about it, you work at it. But when God makes himself known, you receive that, understanding that his wisdom and his perspective is much superior to yours or mine, right? And so it's no trouble. I mean, in other words, we should look at it like this. If you want to hear a little bit longer argument on this, that if I'm called to preach God's word and it's here revealed in his word, we start with this. What is Scripture. Scripture is a revelation of God's will in His perfect wisdom, in His power to make sure that we get what uh, needs to be known. He's revealing that not for His benefit, but for ours, so that we'll know. He must put it in there because He thinks it's good for us. So when you see something in there that maybe even you don't like, understand He's put it in there for you so that you'd know Him better. 
So, all right, I'm probably not in enough trouble yet, so I want to raise one more question to remedy all of that, okay? So here's the question. I probably shouldn't do this, all right? Uh, Brad's preaching next week anyway, you know, so. Here's the question. Do you have a free will? And then, so what's so funny is I could see, you know, you could look around the auditorium, you see some people go like, yep. You see other people going like, nope, right? <laughs> so what's, what's my answer to that? And I, I think this is, my response to this is usually it depends on what you mean by free. What do you mean by free? Remember compatibilism? Right? The sovereignty of God is there. It's revealed in Scripture. Scripture is true. God's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything, including things like what you decide, salvation. Are you responsible? It says it right there in the Scripture. Well, as, as a matter of fact, those last two verses in our passage, what is John driving at? Do you see how they did that? Do you see what they did with the truth? Are they really deciding there? Yeah, they're really deciding. You decide things all the time. You decide, like, what you're going to eat for lunch and what you put on this morning and all of that. You, you, and it's really you deciding it. That's true. And in that sense, you have a free will. Problem is, that doesn't cover the whole issue. There are two things that limit or encumber your will. One is finitude. You're a limited creature. So you can't see everything that could be seen. You can't appropriate all the data. You have a finitude issue. You're limited. And that affects your will. And two is sin. You're a broken calculator. You can punch in the numbers. You can spit out an answer, but you're not always going to get it right. What sin does is it messes with your want to. Even when the truth is right before you, you don't pursue it and receive it as the truth. You don't treat it that way. That's the problem of sin. And if you go, well, no, 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 I think I'm really free. Let me ask you this. Are there things in your life, big things in your life, that you didn't have any decision over? Well, yeah. Like, how tall are you? Do you decide that? Who are your parents? Do you decide that? What's your gender? Well, okay, I'll go to something else. Um, your hair color? Well, that one too, now that I think about it. There, there are answers out there. But like if you, if you look at what, how many things happened? Did you decide when you would be born in time? Did you decide where you would be born in time? No. There's a ton of things that you don't decide, that you can't decide. In that sense, you're not free. Hard to understand, but there's a, the reality is bigger than your sphere. So what's going on in your sphere really is going on. You really are thinking, deciding, choosing. You're doing that. But you're doing that with limitations, and you're doing that with the encumbrance of sin so that it messes up your want to. It doesn't mean you're not deciding. It means that you're going to need grace if you're going to decide well. Um. Like I said, you're a messed up calculator. Put the sovereignty of God and human responsibility together. That's the mind. Compatibilism. Those two go together. You take one out, you're going to commit heresy. It's just a matter of time. Here's two, the heart. Let's talk about the heart. Okay? Read this part. Look at verse 42 with me. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, right? These people have rank, they have influence, and they have insight. They know the word. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but. 
They believed, but. And look at that phrase and take it as a warning. There's a proverb that I meditate on sometimes, Proverbs 4.23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Do heart work. Guard your heart. Tend your heart. Because from it flow the springs of, of life. Uh, when your heart gets troubled, your heart gets messed up, sometimes you go in the wrong direction. Remember the parable of the soils? The same seed, the same truth gets sown into all these different kinds of soils. There's one category of soil, one heart that rejects them. There's another on the other uh, end of the spectrum that's good news, it receives it and it flourishes. But there's a lot of believed but. Right? They believe, they receive the word, but either the cares of this world or the tests that inevitably come and they decide, nah, I see it as truth. The truth's too hard. So they don't treat it as truth. You can see the facts, believe those, but something makes you favor what you know is not true over what you know to be true. You want to know what the problem is? It's disordered loves and fears. You know, your loves and fears are out of order. You see the disordered fears in verse 42, right? They're so afraid of being put out of the synagogue. See, disordered loves in verse 43. Oh, they love the glory that comes from people. They love that kind of affirmation. Do you have disordered loves and fears? The answer to that is yes, by the way. It's just a matter of, like, do you see them? Self-awareness is very important. You know, none of us has it perfectly. I don't have it perfectly for sure. There might be a lot of areas where you get it where you're a very self-aware person. And you go, yeah, I see myself. I, I can see this very well. I'm an anxious person. Maybe you see that in yourself. Maybe you know, like, I'm a rude person. Do something about that, by the way. But maybe you're self-aware and you see that you're a rude person, uh, a selfish person, an angry person. But this is the most important area. Right? They believed, but. Believe, but don't but. Okay? That's the heart work. They believed, but. Believe, but don't but. Don't find a reason why the truth can't be the truth in your life. It'll ruin you. So do those two things. Understand with your mind and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And in this context, his suffering didn't eliminate him from that. It actually proved his glory. It actually accomplished salvation to our everlasting joy. Let's pray. God, we recognize your greatness. You are sovereign. There's nothing that comes to pass that, uh, that you don't know about, that you don't ordain. And we also recognize that uh, we're responsible for what we do. We, we make real decisions every day. We don't know how all of those go together, but we know in your scripture it's revealed. You put them both there, and you don't annihilate one of those uh, versus the other. But we submit ourselves to your will, your truth, and enable us, we pray, to do heart work, to believe without any exception, without any... Uh, qualms to see that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to salvation. Lord, we lift them up. We give him glory. Help us to live out of that glory. We pray for our friends here uh, who maybe are just considering Christianity, considering Jesus. And we pray you'd turn the light on, draw them to you for their joy and uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.